We'll take your copy of Scripture this morning and make your way to the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 will be our text for examination. Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll study together verses 19 through 25 in the 10th chapter of the letter of Hebrews. If you're new to, a, to your Bible, Hebrews is near the end of your Bible. So if you go to the end, you'll find uh, Revelation. Go backwards from Revelation, just a few books, uh, small books, and you'll find the letter to the Hebrews. If you make it back into Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, or Colossians, you've gone too far. Go back the other way, and uh, you'll find it tucked in there. Um, very important letter in our New Testament. So much here connects our Old Testament to our New Testament. And I trust that our study this morning will be a refresher for some of you and will be informative for others. I just Before we jump into our study, I'm just so blessed um, this morning as I've think about David as he was praying. I'm thankful for that kind of theological precision and care being applied to our children's lives. Uh, Children are a major part of this church family. Uh, They keep coming in the masses, and uh, we are thrilled for every stewardship of a young life that um, each family has, and the opportunity to then serve the families and the fathers in particular who are responsible for the discipleship of their children in our children's ministry. And I'm just thankful for David's leadership and his care for our kids. Probably don't say enough about how rare it is to have that kind of precision committed to that particular focus in our church family. So if you haven't expressed to him your gratitude and your praise to God for his ministry, maybe today is the day to do that. And um, I want to lead out in that. I'm also thankful for Dave Jackson's leadership, the kind of passion and um, concern for The nations here in our valley has been so evident. Um, It was a total delight to know that Dave was leading the charge in having Tom and Josie uh, connected to the ministry opportunities that are represented in our church. So many of your sheds, um, your operations were visited. And uh, give Tom and Josie a clear uh, perspective of the scope of the ministry and to have Dave along and guiding them and putting them with people who are also passionate about the mission. Just such a rich blessing. And the leadership and example there are um, exemplary to us. So thankful for Dave and uh, his hospitality and his leadership in that ministry. Pray for Dave in particular. He is the point man, and he is caring for these couples. And uh, pray for our pastoral team as a whole as we try to navigate what God would have for us as a church family. And um, take advantage of the opportunity to be together. The 30 people that we had together will attest. If you meet one of them, they'll attest to what a blessing that was to be together. And uh, I'm one of them, and uh, I'm happy to talk to you about it if you want to talk to me. It was a great time. Not because we had great food, though that is always a component, it seems, of great fellowship. In this church, at least. Uh, It was because of what we got to experience in hearing the heart of another uh, brother in Christ and sister in Christ for the mission here at our church. So thankful for both Daves, uh, Demo as we like to call him, and Farmer Dave as we like to call him. So excited for what God is doing through leaders in our church. Uh, if you're guests with us or if you've been away uh, vacationing uh, through the summer, we are looking at the 10 ministry commitments that make up the philosophy of ministry for our church. They are the uh, framework upon which we, we are building. And uh, we're building on this framework because we believe this framework is a biblical one. Uh, We are now in our number eight, or really number nine, of our ministry commitments because we moved number nine up 
in between number three and four. So let me review them for you just to refresh your memory. We're committed, number one, to God and his authoritative word. Number two, we're committed to God-centered worship, which we have partaken of this morning and enjoy greatly as a staple of our times of meeting together as a church. Number three, we're committed to proclaiming Jesus as both master and savior, Lord and savior. We slip number nine in after number three because of its connection to the Lordship of Christ. We're committed to church discipline and restoration. We are committed to a serious gospel life together as a church family. Number four, we're committed to making disciples locally and globally, which we've been reminded of this morning. Number five, we're committed to grace-motivated spiritual growth, the gospel at work in us as God's people, rather than a... um, Debtor's ethic or works-based sanctification, we are committed to grace motivating us in our spiritual growth. Our love for God being the very basis of our walk with God and our obedience to God. Number six, we are committed to dependent, expectant prayer, which we have enjoyed together this morning as David led us, praying dependently and expectantly as a church family. And last week, number seven, we are committed to a plurality of servant leaders, of elders, of pastors, of overseers for our church family. Um, Servants who have given themselves for the oversight of the flock under the head pastor of our church, who is Jesus Christ, the head of every local assembly of his body. That brings us to number eight today and our commitment to authenticity and accountability. And here's the statement that follows that commitment. Believers must go beyond superficial relationships and be committed to intimacy in each other's lives, continually stirring up one another to love God and to love others. The church must minister to both the physical and spiritual needs of the body. Selfless, sacrificial love is the defining mark of Christ's disciples and the continual requirement for flawed humans to work together demands a sacrificial giving of oneself for another. We are committed to genuineness, authenticity, and accountability, connectedness within our local assembly. Not merely gathering on the Lord's Day as an audience to sit and watch or to receive, but gathering together as a flock that lives life together. When we gather, we are equipping one another. When we scatter, we are taking the gospel mission to our culture. Now, with that commitment for authenticity and accountability, sitting upon our time this morning for study, we're faced with with a a contrast in the normal scope of our church experience. And I I think this is fair. I, I always am scared when I talk about the church at large. Number one, I'm 31 years old. My knowledge of the church at large is hindered by the brevity of my life to this point. Number two... I live in a context and in a culture that is very specific. So my ability to discern what is happening outside of here is is uh, sketchy at best. But with my limited experience and my limited knowledge, my finite nature as a human being, I believe that most of our culture today is convinced that the church is made up not of authentic Christ followers who are accountable to one another, but on on the contrary, made up of hypocrites who are living life independent of one another. I think that is a cultural perspective or perception of the church. And 
in whatever region or whatever culture it finds itself. Devoid of authenticity, devoid of accountability, devoid of the real deal. And so you and I have faced in talking to others who are not a part of Christ's body, the the rebuttal that, that the body of Christ is made up of hypocrites. It's made up of people who don't actually know what other people within their local church assembly really are. That's a sad commentary on the church. We, of course, cannot be a part of assessing and evaluating and bringing change and development in every local assembly. But we can be a part of that and we can be committed to that here in our local assembly, in our family. Here we can be convinced of the necessity of something different, of the gospel producing in us different priorities, of authenticity being in in the very expectation of our life together as members of Grace Church of the Valley, that we actually would be real followers of Christ and that we would live as real followers of Christ with one another pursuing growth by God's grace. I'm reminded of the metal testers of old. Perhaps you have bitten into something as some kind of joke because you realize that that was a way in the past of testing metal. Why? Metal testers would bite metal that was claiming to be gold in particular because gold is a very soft metal. But lead is even softer. And if they were biting into lead, it would sink. Their teeth would sink into the metal and it would pull off the veneer of gold that had been painted onto the outside. I'm praying that God would make us a church that when you bite into the very material of this church, you find it to be true. You find it to be real. You find sinners gathered together who have been changed and are being changed from the inside out. People whose perspective has been marked by Scripture and by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you remember or maybe you enjoy, like I do, the music of Casting Crowns. It's a contemporary band that wrote a song a few years ago a few years ago called stained glass masquerade in the course of that song the question is asked are we happy plastic people under shiny plastic steeples with walls around our weakness and smiles to hide our pain to every heart that's been broken maybe then we close the curtain on our stained glass masquerade Are we happy plastic people? Is Grace Church a plastic place? Did we come this morning and plaster on the facade of joy and of contentment and of peace? Did we put our clothes on in such a way and prep ourselves in the in the preparation for coming here with some kind of mask? Is this a game or are we authentic and accountable to one another. Here's the big idea for this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ establishes the basis for authenticity and accountability in our church. Our church family will be authentic and accountable if the gospel of Jesus Christ is at work at the base level. The gospel of Jesus Christ establishes the basis for authenticity and accountability in our local church. Why is that? Well, the gospel of Jesus unifies the followers of Jesus together so that it renders us interwoven with each other in a, in a way that leaves us 
vulnerable to one another, open to one another, accountable to each other, so that our authenticity can be tested and exposed for the glory of God and with the grace of God being applied. That brings us to Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 19 through 25, which is one of the primary texts on the 10 ministry commitments. On number eight, you'll find this text written for you because it is so key to this commitment to being authentic and accountable to one another. Let's read the text together. Let's set our attention on it. Then I'm going to explain a little bit about how we'll divide it up. And then we'll dig into our study for the remainder of our time together. Verse number 19 of Hebrews chapter 10 says this to us this morning. The author of Hebrews, under the direct inspiration of the Spirit, says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now to divide this text up and to give, I hope, some kind of a skeleton upon which we can build this text and understand what's here. We're just going to divide this into two major sections. And these two major sections could be applied in any number of texts in your Bible. Especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul is is consistently breaking up these two sections in his writing. We have first, our first section will be gospel roots. There are gospel roots which, when applied to the life of a Christian, produce, secondly, gospel fruits. Gospel roots and gospel fruits. This is a normal way for the Bible to interact with us. To tell us what is true about us and then to show us the implications of those truths. To say this is what is fact and now this is what is the function of that fact. Here is the reality and here are the responses. This is a normal way and we'll use that division to break up this text. I think it naturally fits as we unpack these verses this morning. So first of all, we'll look in verses 19 and 20 at gospel roots, gospel realities, what is true, what is fact, what is foundation, verses 19 to 20. Therefore, connects us back to the first part of chapter 10, where the author of Hebrews has been convincing his readers, the Jewish readers, he's been convincing them that Christ's sacrifice is superior to any animal sacrifice. This is nothing new to the letter of Hebrews. This is a constant theme, and it kind of culminates if we read verse number 10. I think we see this kind of packed together for us. Verse number 11, rather. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time or once for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool 
for his feet. This is the context of verse number 19 and the word therefore. Therefore, in your Bible study, always puts you back to something else and launches you forward into what is to come. It's a hinge word. So therefore, in this context, draws us, based upon what has been said about the sacrifice of Christ, now into the roots of the gospel. What is true because of the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ? Well, we see it in these since phrases. Here's what is true. Here are the roots. Here are the realities for all of us who are in Christ this morning. If you're here, you've died to yourself. You have faith in Jesus Christ as the completed sacrifice and covering for your sin, as the righteousness of God for you. Here are your realities. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We, first of all, at the gospel root level, have a confidence to go where we could never go. Now, perhaps you and your study of Scripture are not currently reading Old Testament text. Maybe you're not reading in, in particular the texts that describe the tabernacle of the nation of Israel. The tabernacle was a tent that was carried around with the nation of Israel all 40 of those years in the wilderness. They carried around this tabernacle, and that tabernacle was the place where, at different times, designated by God, with individuals only designated by God, those who were the priests, who were the descendants of Aaron, where God would come and meet with his people. The holy places were the inner rooms of that tabernacle where the high priest could go and actually make a covering for sin where the Shekinah glory of God, the the presence of God would meet with the priest. This was such risky business that even those who were in the right lineage and who had purified themselves to be in the presence of God as the high priest had a rope tied around their waist. And they had bells attached to the bottom of their garment. So that if the bells stopped ringing because they had stopped moving, the people outside of those holy places could pull on the rope. And if it was dead weight, they could be sure that that priest had entered without proper care for his condition. And they would drag out that body. No one dare go into the holy places who is not a descendant of Abraham, who is not purified, and who is not set in order before God. But because of the perfection of the sacrifice of Christ, as both the high priest and the lamb that was sacrificed, this now is our confidence. We have confidence. At the root of our lives as Christians, we go places where we could never have gone. We go into the holy places. Now, we surely don't waltz into the holy places, but the curtain has been torn. The separation has been done away with. This is at the root of our existence in Christ. It is the new and living way, verse 20 says, that he opened for us through the curtain. Not the cloth curtain, but the curtain of his flesh, giving his body to open the door to the holy places. So now we, Gentiles and Jews alike, are a nation of priests. 
we now come boldly into the presence of God. We go right into the holy places. Why? Because at the root of the gospel presence in us, we have access to God. Secondly, verse number 20 goes on to say, or 21 says, rather, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So two since phrases. One is we've got confidence to go where we've never gone before, into the holy places. And two, we have a great high priest. We have one who is seated at the right hand of the Father that we just read about earlier in chapter 10, who is over the house of God. The gospel makes Jesus our high priest. He's ours. He's our possession. He is our high priest. He is my high priest. He is your high priest. He is the church's high priest. So this new and living way that has been made by the body of Christ being given as a sacrifice establishes for us a new confidence to be in his presence, presence of our holy God and the blessing of a new and great high priest. So no one has possession of confidence before God apart from the blood of Jesus. This is gospel root. This is at the base of who we are. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, John 14, 6. This is our gospel foundation. That gospel rooting in verse 19 and 20 launches us into the gospel fruits of verse number 21 through 25. And in some ways, this is a grammar lesson for us as Bible students. Because we're watching sentences unfold. And we're seeing how the author of Hebrews is is preparing us for the commands that are about to come in verse number 22, 23, 24, and 25. So with the gospel roots of confidence before God because of blood that covers our sin and righteousness that's been credited to our accounts through faith. So we've been both cleared of our guilt of sin and we have been given righteousness so that we stand right before God. With both of those things true in the perfection of his sacrifice, now we, with this great high priest, have these fruits set before us. So now the implications of the gospel come bearing down upon us. The New Testament never disconnects. Please don't miss this. The the New Testament never disconnects the gospel from its effects. Um, Similar to the law of action and reaction, The gospel always has implications and the Bible never separates them so that you can somehow possess the gospel, but be unaffected by the gospel. That's exactly what this text is doing. It's smashing those back together for us. If the roots are there, here are the fruits that are present as our existence in Christ plays out in a daily day life. Okay, verse number 22, then we find the gospel fruits in The let us statements. So if we have the since statements of verses 19 through 21, since we have confidence and since we have a great high priest, now we have the let us statements, the commitments, the implications, the fruits in verse 22 down through verse 25. So first of all, let's see verse 22. Here is a gospel implication. Here is a gospel fruit because of gospel roots. Let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies, our flesh, washed with pure water. 
Now, there is a lot there. And we could spend, well, I could spend the rest of the morning there. Whether or not you would spend it with me, I can't assure. But we could spend all day unpacking these truths that are packed into this one verse. Drawing near to God, progressive nearness and affections for God, relationship with God is a natural fruit of the gospel roots. This is a, in the logic of the author of Hebrews, this is a natural flow. You've got a new heart, there ought to be a progressive nearness to God. Oh, we desperately long to be near to Him. Not near in the sense of earning closeness to Him, but in relational connection to our God, to whom we've been brought near by the blood of His Son's cross. So the the condition with which we draw near to God is full assurance of faith with clean hearts and with clean bodies. And the sprinkled picture goes back to our Old Testament. This is the sprinkling of blood of sheep and goats. Now we are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience by the blood of Christ. And our bodies are washed with pure water that is the word. This is our first fruit in Hebrews chapter 10. Gospel roots producing gospel fruits. Gospel fruit number one, we are drawing near to God. Have you ceased to draw near to God? Does God seem further away right now than perhaps He has ever seemed in your life? The remedy for distance from God is not gritting your teeth, hunkering down, and working closer to Him. It's going back to gospel roots. It's going back to gospel truth. It's going back to the sufficiency of your Savior. It's going back to righteousness that's not your own. It's going back to total covering that you have not earned but has been given to you through the blood of the cross. It's going back to gospel roots. And in gospel roots, we find ourselves drawn again toward gospel fruits in a progressive nearness to our God. Our relationship to God is the very fabric of our existence in Christ. So this is the first of the fruits, and I want to spend all the time in the world there, but we've got to get to the third one. So let's go to the second one, and let's keep moving. Verse 23. Second fruit of gospel roots, let us hold fast. So draw near, hold fast. And then thirdly, consider how. But we'll get there in just a moment. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, of our expectation Without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. So gospel roots, the the realities of the gospel are at work in us and they should be and they must be producing in us a nearness to God and a confidence that is ever building and unwavering in the word of God. Hold fast the confession of our hope. The confession of our hope is that our eternity is bound up in someone else and their work on our behalf. We believe this because of the character quality of the one who told it to us. Right? We walk by faith. Our daily lives are marked by faith. We walk believing something that we cannot yet see. And the basis of our belief must be the character quality of the one who told us about what's coming that we haven't seen. 
And when we trace back who it is that has told us about Jesus Christ, who it is that has shown us the glory of His Son, humbled in human form, without sin, dying on the cross as a substitution for sinners, raised to eternal life, so there's victory over death and sin. When we go back to, who told me this? That if I repent and believe, I have an eternal home in the presence of my Creator and Sustainer. I have a forever changed heart that is living itself out in a progressively changing life. And I have the anticipation of the removal, not just of the power of sin in this life, but the presence of sin in the next. Who told us that? The character of whoever said it is at stake in whether or not we hold fast to that confession. And that's why the author of Hebrews says the fruit of the gospel in our lives is squeezing onto our confession of hope without wavering. Why? Because the one who promised us has never broken his word. He is faithful. So with gospel truth resonating in our hearts. We draw near to God. We hold fast to the confession of our hope because of his character. And then finally, we we see this third fruit. And this one is directly connected to our commitment to accountability and to authenticity. Because here we see the natural in the author of Hebrews mind under the spirit's direction, the natural fruit of gospel roots. Gospel people. Draw near to God. Gospel people hold fast to the hope that is theirs through faith. And gospel people consider how. So the third statement is let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is a natural implication of the gospel. Gospel actions come in a plural sense. Notice the plural Recognition in verses 24 and 25. All of this is about the community of Christ. The brothers that have been gathering together on Tuesday mornings uh, for our Bible study in Ephesians, which has been a total blessing and a rich, a rich time for us. We've been studying in Ephesians this connection between the gospel and the plural implications of the God. We have been saved to be a part of plural people. New life in Christ has produced a new community in Christ. And what we find out here is that the new community is a key part of the fruit that's born because of gospel roots in us. So let us consider, let us think about, let us play out in our minds, let us strategize mentally about how to do certain activities. Let's look at them together. Here's what we should be considering. One, how to stir up one another. Stir up one another. This is an interesting word. If you have an old King James, maybe translation in front of you, I think you have the word provoke. Provoke one another. And that's a negative term. And that's because this word in the Greek language is a negative word. Um, A.T. Robertson says you could translate this sharpen, stimulate, incite. Uh, we think of incite. I, I, in my vocabulary, incite only goes with riots. I don't know why. Maybe other things are incited. But I think riots are the only thing that come naturally to my mind of inciting. When someone is inciting a riot, they are stirring up the crowd to the point of a frenzy so that the crowd in mob movement does whatever the stirrer or the provoker 
or the inciter desires to have happen. We are to be inciting and provoking each other. The church is to be a place where the people of God are gathered locally in local assemblies under under shepherds who are giving oversight and direction and where the people of God are so authentic and engaged with one another that they're actually provoking each other. There's a constant pep rally mentality to the body of Christ together. And sadly, we do not, at least in the Western culture, we often do not connect the life of the body of Christ together as a natural fruit of gospel roots. And this is foreign to us. For many of us, church is a place, not a people. It's a building that we go to, not a body of which we are a body part. And certainly the idea of being real and open with one another and then being accountable to each other so that this gospel fruit is played out is an uncomfortable thought to us. Sanctification is a team game. It's a community activity. God saved you through the work of His Son and left us here as the representation of His Son on earth until His Son returns with the help of the Spirit who is indwelling us as His people. And we are to be progressively sanctified through the ministry of one another. Authenticity and accountability come full bore in verse number 24 and 25. When we consider, when we strategize about how to be stirring up one another. Now this means something for our gatherings together. I mean, it means we have to think Differently, We have to consider how to do this when we're together. Part of the cultural unawareness to the body life of the local assembly is that we don't prepare to do this. And we know we don't prepare to do this because when someone else does this to us, we get very uncomfortable. Why are you in my kitchen? Why are you standing firmly on my toes? Why have you so invaded my personal space? Why are you asking me these questions? Why are you commending me to obedience and love? If we're struggling with others involved with us in this way or attempting to be, it's most likely because we are unprepared to be about what we must be about. We are not bearing fruit from gospel roots. We are to draw near, we are to hold fast, and we are to consider how plan to provoke each other brothers and sisters we have to be committed as an assembly to plan to be an inciter for love and good works and as paul tripp often says in many contexts you cannot give what you do not possess we cannot incite love and good works if we have lived in carnality in our flesh if we are void of love and good works we certainly will not be provokers toward that end Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't just leave it there. He goes further. He gets further into authentic, accountable Christianity in verse number 25. Not neglecting, if you're going to stir one another up to good works, here's the implication. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but rather encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. So the more clear the end becomes, the more desperate this activity, this fruit ought to be from gospel roots. 
because of the because of the relationship of the fruit to our hearts. It's essential that we plan to be together, to be about growth together. Now, next week, we're going to finish out our 10 ministry commitments with every member ministry, corporate ministry to one another. So we won't go far into this, but we must be together to be stirring up one another. We cannot make plans to not be together and still be bearing gospel fruit from gospel roots. This is a natural connection for the author of Hebrews. Don't neglect the gathering. Already at this point in the church, this is way early in the church's life. Already people are making plans to not be with the body. Already making plans to neglect the ministry with one another within their local assembly. So the author of Hebrews has to deal with it. This is gospel fruit, he says. It comes from gospel roots. Don't neglect the gathering. There must be an establishment of priority based upon gospel reality. Priorities, priorities, priorities. This last week, um, I invited my good friend Scott Riddle to enjoy a healthy, delicious lunch of hot wings at uh, a fine eating establishment called Wingstop. If you don't care about your life and you like wings, you might want to try Wingstop at some point. They have french fries with sugar on them. No joke. It'll be in the kingdom somehow. (laughs) I invited Scott to come and eat wings with me because he is my faithful wing-eating partner and discipleship and encouragement does happen when we gather together around those wings. He texted me back and said, my family's in town. We're having a family, a whole family meal from extended family. I texted back to him. At some point, Scott, you must apply priorities to your life. Um, <laughs> I won't tell you how the rest of the conversation went, but I, what I was doing there was teasingly, jokingly saying priorities have to dictate our actions. At some point, what is important to us has to be derived or has to be applied to, rather, the decisions that we make. So if gospel roots are at the bottom of our existence, if they're the foundation, we must build with priorities that match those gospel roots. Those roots produce fruits, like drawing near to God. We plan to be involved in relationship with God because we have been made His sons and daughters. And we plan to be faithful in our confession, reminding ourselves of the faithfulness of the one who has communicated the promises of the gospel. And we plan to be friction, to be stirring up, to be inciting each other to love and good works. We have priorities that dictate our actions. Authenticity and accountability within our local assembly, if it's ever going to be reality, it will be because we have committed to being together. This is not a legalistic approach to attendance. This is not some checklist of church attendance. This is we are a body. We're a family. We are, we are dependent upon each other. I need your giftedness by the Holy Spirit. You need my giftedness applied to your life through the Holy Spirit. And we desperately need each other to be stirring each other up to love and good works. That authenticity and accountability is the fabric of a grace-motivated attendance at church. We're here because we long to be here because we recognize the fruits of the gospel that take place when we're together. Whether it's here or in any number of smaller settings where we meet together. 
We must not neglect. We must rather, in verse number 25, encourage one another. The habit cannot be missing each other, but rather motivating each other. Encouraging one another. This is a positive word. This is a word that's talking about building up, coming alongside, putting our arms around each other and saying, we do have a high priest who's faithful. We do have covering. Brother, take up arm. Lean on me. Terrible song ran through my mind there. Lean on me. Um, Encouraging one another. We will not go down that road. This is the same word that Paul used in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 when he said, I appeal to you, brothers, to give your lives as a living sacrifice. I appeal to you. I'm appealing. I'm encouraging one another. And then notice the end of verse 25 as we finish our study. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now that's a detail in the text that is really important for us to understand. Because as Bible students, most of you careful students for a number of years, you recognize that when it's capital D day, the day, you immediately think judgment day, and rightfully so. And when we think judgment day, we naturally think of our Savior on a white horse conquering his enemies, and rightly so. But the day represented here, which is to be a, 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 a motivator toward stirring one another up, and encouraging one another, this day, I believe, is connected to us first. I want to show this to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13 is the place where I believe we find the most pure cross-reference to this idea. Paul is commending the leaders of the church to be careful in how they build upon the foundation of Christ in the church. So he says in verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. For if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, notice verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is speaking of our judgment day, our presentation before our Savior, not in condemnation for our sin, which he has covered with his blood, which he has conquered with his resurrection, but for the evaluation of our lives for the glory of his Father's name. This is the day that's coming. We will stand before Christ and his fiery eyes will evaluate our role in building up his people. If it is precious metal, it will survive and will in God's grace receive reward. God will reward us. Christ will reward us for what he has enabled us to accomplish. It's God who's at work in us to will and to do what brings him good pleasure. And it's God who rewards it when we do. All of grace. But this is the day. That which is done in our own strength, without dependence upon His grace, which is done in our own wisdom, devoid of His word, will be burned up. And though we will be 
saved, though we will enjoy the eternal blessing and benefit of our existence with Christ, we will have suffered loss in that we are not rewarded in a way that would turn back praise to Christ. We are not as effective as we could have been. This is the day that's drawing near. And with that day coming, we get all the more urgent for one another to be to be active in love and good works for the glory of our Father. To be active in pursuing fruits that flow from gospel roots. Our hearts are changed and judgment is coming. Assessment, if you will. Judgment is a harsh word. Assessment is coming from our Savior. And with that coming assessment and with the new gospel roots in us, we are desperately desiring to draw near, to hold fast, and to stir one another up so that we are fruitful for the glory of God. Growth and endurance and provocation are community projects for our church. They mean authenticity, realness in Christ, and accountability in Christ must be commitments for our life together. Or, if we choose not to be accountable and authentic with one another, if we choose not to confess our sins to one another, if we, can, if we choose not to be engaged in stirring one another up to love and good works, if we neglect to gather together rather than encourage one another, Grace Church of the Valley will be yet another story of hypocrisy and spiritual fraud under the banner of Christ's name. Another superficial place with superficial religious relationships that bear no fruit for the glory of God nor stand as a counter to the culture in which we exist. The gospel of Jesus Christ establishes the basis for authenticity and accountability in our church. Every single one of us as members. So what do we do with this text? What do we do with these Roots and fruits. Let me give you a couple thoughts by way of application. Number one, examine the roots. It's impossible to come to this text and not examine the roots. Make your calling and election sure. Do these gospel roots actually represent the the basis of your existence? Is there genuine gospel life? Authenticity can include authentically saying, I am not in Christ. Examine the roots. And if there are roots of the gospel truth evident in our lives, then plan for fruit. Examine the roots and plan for for fruit. Prioritize the body of Christ. Prioritize the relational component of growth. So often, Renee and I were talking last night after she got home from the conference. So often we think of our sanctification as all about me getting somewhere and growing. And it's all about where am I in this, in this, in this scale? Where me, 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 me. Rather than a Godward focus of do I love God? Do I treasure him? Because in treasuring and valuing and worshiping God, I find my heart drawn to obedience and growth. But also in sanctification, we're often prone to think of sanctification as an isolated event. And the more we isolate ourselves in sanctification, the more we put up the walls to make sure nobody sees what's really going on. And the more deceived we become that our growth in Christ is all about us rather than all about us. It's all about me rather than it's all about the local assembly of believers 
coming alongside of me. My growth in Christ, your growth in Christ is dependent upon each other. I need you so that I look more like Christ. More effective for him. Mortifying sin, as you pointed out. And as you encourage gospel growth, I need you. I cannot be effective without you. And you need one another. You need the person to your left. I'm not a communicator that makes you say things to each other. Uh, I listen to James McDonald on the radio sometimes, and I kind of laugh at the way he tells them all to say things to each other all the time. If you listen to James walking the word, you know what I'm talking about. I feel like right now doing a James and saying, look at the person next to you and say, I need you. You, you do need each other. Whether or not we believe that is really the deciding factor of whether or not we're engaged with authenticity and accountability. The end of that song from Casting Crowns says, Is there anyone who's been there? Are there any hands to raise? Am I the only one who's traded in the altar for a stage? The performance is convincing, and we know every line by heart. Only when no one is watching can we really fall apart. But would it set me free if I dared to let you see the truth behind the person that you imagined me to be? Would your arms be open, or would you walk away? Would the love of Jesus be enough to make you stay? Would you engage in authentic, accountable relationship if we opened our lives to one another? The gospel makes us open our lives, and the gospel is the basis of us engaging with open lives. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ establishes the basis for authenticity and accountability in the church.